Hello, everybody. Welcome to Hold the Line. My name's Joe, and I'm a British force-free gun dog trainer. You can check out my online courses at forcefreegundog.com. The newest course is called Training the T Drill. You can also pick up a copy of my book called Force Free Gun Dog Training: The Fundamentals for Success, which is available on Amazon's everywhere around the world. There's also an accompanying workbook to record your training sessions in. I'm currently working on a sequel to Force Free Gun Dog Training. And I hope it's going to be out maybe in about six months. We'll see. That's all for now. Let's get on with the show. Train your gun dog without force or fear. Motivate and educate. Hold the line is here. Prevention, repetition, generalization, motivation. Hold the line. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Hold the Line. So it's going to be a slightly atypical episode today because I'm going to talk about a sort of let's call it societal issue problem relating to population overpopulation of urban and suburban areas and the impact that that has on owning a dog, training a dog. And especially when there is a high energy gun dog breed. So I'm going to talk about that as a subject. And I'm going to be talking specifically about where I've been living since 2013, which is an island called Jersey. Now, I say I've been living here since 2013, but I grew up here. And so we spent a very long time off the island. So probably about 15 years we spent on the UK mainland and then returned to Jersey in 2013. And when I came back to Jersey in 2013, I really thought I was coming back here to stay, to live for the rest of my life. I'd always thought of Jersey as the place that I would come back to at some point. I just never known when it would be because my family are all from Jersey. My parents are from Jersey. My grandparents are from Jersey. My great grandparents were all from Jersey. My great great grandparents were all from Jersey. Jersey is an island which is nine miles by five and everybody genetically behind me in my blood, as it were, is from this island back to the 1500s. <clears throat> so that's both on both sides of my family tree. So yeah, this this is a bit of a, an unusual situation. I recognize now, although, you know, it has not something that's always been apparent to me as being unusual. But I have a lot of stories about the island and I'll be very sad to leave Jersey in many ways because I do experience it as home. So my grandparents were all here during the occupation. The Germans occupied Jersey during the Second World War and the British forces withdrew and allowed the Germans to occupy because they couldn't defend this tiny little island which was so close to France. So they withdrew. And so, yeah, my grandparents all lived here during the occupation. In fact, my father's parents had German officers living in their farmhouse. They were farmers. So, why am I telling you about this? I'm telling you about this because I want to sort of get across to you that I'm very personally attached to this island and I know it like the back of my hand. I have stories about every centimeter of it, which have been told to me from my family, um, very fa- various family members across the years. And yet we're going to be leaving this island. And a major reason that we're going to be leaving this island is the subject of overpopulation and what this means. So yeah, um, 
And I'm sure that this is not something which is only relevant to Jersey, because when we look around the world at the moment, population numbers are increasing. And I know that pretty much every urban and suburban area is going to be confronted with a similar sort of situation that there's a massive uh, sort of competition for resources when when space gets tight. So that's what I want to talk about today. And I am going to talk specifically about Jersey, and there may be some things which are Jersey specific, but I want you to kind of be thinking about where you live, particularly if it's a, an urban or suburban area, and and how this might relate to to you as well. And I do have some suggestions and solutions because a lot of the first part of what I'm going to say is a bit depressing, to be honest. It's very doom and gloom because we're not in a good situation and there's no sign of it getting any better. But I do have some suggestions. And there is also a little kind of selfish part of me. Well, maybe it's not selfish, but a part of me which wants to use this podcast episode as an opportunity to record for posterity the situation as it stands and my solutions, because I know that once I leave Jersey, my head's going to be in a different place and I'm going to be thinking about where I've moved to and what it's like to live there. I'm not going to be thinking about the problems of the place that I left. And so I want to make sure while my thoughts are crystal clear and while I have this opportunity to get these down and get these out, that I record them for posterity. And should anyone at any point in future, maybe like a politician in Jersey, want to hear what I think uh, as, as a dog trainer and behaviorist who's lived on this island for the last almost 10 years, um, want to want to know what I think about that and about some solutions that I might have that I can just go, hey, listen to this podcast episode. It's all here. So there's a little kind of alternative agenda that I have, which I just want to put out there. So let's go. Let's talk about the problem to start with. Hold the line. So the problem, let's kind of summarize the problems that we kind of all know what we're talking about. So the problem in my eyes is that of a lack of space. So if you take any species of animal, pretty much like rats or um, gorillas or whatever it is, and you put them in in an enclosed space, which is too small, at some point you will reach a population density where fighting breaks out, infighting breaks out due to competition over resources. It doesn't matter really what the species is, with some exceptions. When you reach a certain population density, this is what will occur, whether it's rats in a laboratory cage or whether it's gorillas in an enclosure at the zoo, or in fact, whether it's humans on a small island. You will find that when you reach a certain population density, more aggressive behavior develops. And you can see this in a human context as far as road rage goes, people just getting really irate with each other on the roads or neighbors spying on what each other are up to and reporting each other to authorities um, or just people kind of um, microaggressions, microaggressions happening all the time. So I don't want to go into the human side of things too much because that's not what this, this is about. It's more about the impact on, well, dog dog ownership and and that side of things. So we not only have a lack of space and a densely populated area, but we also have pretty much no controls over who can have a dog and any sort of level of knowledge that you need to have in order to have a dog. So we have people who get a dog and they don't really know what it's socially acceptable to do with that dog in public. Like, do you let your dog run up to other dogs 
is that good socialization? Should you do A in X situation or should you do B? People just don't know. They don't know how to behave in public with a dog. Not just how to train the dog. I mean, that would be, that's a step further, but they don't know what the, what the sort of goal is. They don't know what the ideal is. They don't know what they're aiming for. And so if they don't know what they're aiming for, they're definitely not going to get there. <laughs> I mean, it could be the situation where people know what they're aiming for, but their training lets them down and they, they, they're unable to train the dog to recall back to them, for example. That's another stage further. I think the first stage we have to get to is that people are actually educated in terms of um, how to behave in public. What is, what is optimal behavior from a dog owner in a public place? Um, so the thing is though, that these people who don't know anything about how to own a dog, if we lived in a place where there was a sort of infinite amount of public space, very few people are going to choose to go and walk their dog or exercise their dog in a place where lots of other people are also exercising their dogs. I mean, some people might, but a lot of people would think, well, look, for the peace and quiet and the sake of just not, you know, having an easy time of it, let's go and choose a place where we're not going to run into other people. And that would be, they'll be able to do that because we live in this hypothetical place where there will be infinite space. But we don't live in that place. We live in the real world. And the real world, at least the real world, which is Jersey, has very limited space, public space for people to exercise their dogs. And so people are sort of pushed together, pushed together like those gorillas in the enclosure or like those rats in the enclosure. And their dogs are as well. And so aggression breaks out. That's what happens. Now, it doesn't always happen. Obviously, some dogs love to play together, but there can be problems arising from that as well, which are not at first apparent. So dogs which are allowed to play with other dogs excessively and roughly, particularly when they are young puppies and adolescents, and they're learning what is reinforcing in the world at this at this age. They're learning that you know food is reinforcing, or my owner is reinforcing, or toys are reinforcing, or other dogs and play in contact with other dogs are reinforcing. So if you allow your dog to do this excessively when they're young, they're gonna they're highly likely to grow up to learn that this is amazing. This is like doggy crack, this kind of game of playing chase with another dog and slathering all over another dog's neck and running until your tongue is touching the ground because you're being chased or you're chasing. This is so much fun. And then what happens with that dog as they get older is they become a dog which is hyper-focused on running off to play with other dogs. So when you take that dog out and about in a public place, their main agenda is to scan the horizon and to look for another dog which they can run off and play with because they see you as a bit irrelevant because you've taught them that the bomb, the most amazing stuff in the world is other dogs. So that's a whole little kind of cul-de-sac of information there, which is just to say that it might look like it's a fantastic thing for dogs to run crazy and have a fantastic time playing with other strange dogs that they meet out and about. But you can be setting yourself up for, well, just a dog which isn't very connected to you, a dog which doesn't want to recall back to you, a dog which isn't engaged with you when you're out and about. And that is a slippery slope towards having a dog which is out of control because that dog is not going to want to come back when you call them. So it's pretty simple on that on that count. So yes. All right. So I'm going to talk a little bit about now Jersey specifically, because I believe there have been some factors in the past which have naturally capped the population, the dog population in Jersey. So I I had to think about this. and I think there were three factors which naturally limited the number of dogs that were in Jersey in times gone by. So firstly, a while back, 
there were limited local litters. So there just were not a vast number of people on this island breeding dogs. So if people wanted to purchase a puppy, they had to kind of look quite hard. They had to scan the classified ads. They had to really wait for a litter to come available. And that probably wouldn't have much choice of what sort of dog they wanted. It might even be a crossbred puppy might not be able to be very specific. So there just wasn't much, there weren't many locally available litters. The second issue is that because we're an island, it was pretty expensive for people to import a puppy from off the island. So it's pretty costly to take a car on the ferry to the UK mainland and back again. Currently, you're looking at probably for two people and a car return on the ferry, about £450. And that's not including the petrol to get to a breeder in the UK and any sort of overnight accommodation that you might need in order to be able to get your ferry back again. And it takes a long time in the ferry. Even the fast ferry takes five hours to the UK mainland. And then you've got driving home on top of that. So it's not an easy, it's not an easy thing to do. You can't just say, hey, let's get a puppy. It's, it's difficult for people to do this. And so that's, that's another sort of natural cap, which we've had on things in the past. And then the third sort of cap, which we've had is that we haven't had lots of local rescue organizations. We have had historically the JSPCA, the Jersey Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, who have had, well, tend to have like a few dogs in at any time, but they don't have like dozens and dozens of dogs available for rescue. So there's been a scarcity in the past of dogs looking for homes as well. And the JSPCA are also very particular about the new home that a dog goes to. And there are certain things that they really want to make sure that the home has, which I don't want to be judgmental about, But they'll say things like the the home has to have a six foot fence and the dog can't be left alone for longer than a certain amount of time. And they are very specific about these requirements. And so that has naturally excluded a lot of people who weren't able to meet those requirements, those very stringent requirements. So those three factors have naturally, historically capped the number of dogs that we've had on the island. Now, One big change which has happened relatively recently, so like within the last sort of 10 years, has been a rescue organization, a local rescue organization, which has been importing dogs from Spain. Now, obviously, they've been doing this with the very best of intentions and trying to give these street dogs from Spain a a loved home. And also, they've seen that there is a need, there's there's demand on the island for dogs, which you know, why it makes sense on on the face of things, doesn't it? Let's take let's take some dogs from a place where there's a surplus of dogs and let's place them in a location where there's not enough dogs. That it just makes sense. You can see why they would want to do this. But the end result has been that we have had an influx of of dogs from Spain. Hundreds of dogs, hundreds and hundreds of dogs. And there haven't been any real restrictions on this specifically. So we do have the same breed restrictions as the UK mainland, but apart from that, not really. So it's also made it a lot easier for people to get a dog locally. So they can get a dog from this rescue organization for probably about £300-ish, which is considerably cheaper than taking a ferry to the UK and bringing back a puppy. So it's appealing in that way. And this rescue organization is much more flexible about the 
what the home would have to offer in terms of, for example, things like your six foot fence and someone at home all the time um, to look after the dog. And they're much more flexible about that. So there's been been a, a big group of people who were excluded previously from rescuing a dog from the JSPCA who've been able to have a dog rescue a dog from this rescue rescue organization from Spain. And it's kind of meant that we have had a huge influx of these dogs. So I think that has meant a big increase. We also have to think about other social factors as well. Like Jersey is a very wealthy island. And when people have disposable income, they naturally want to spend it on, well, often on puppies, dogs. Very popular way to, you know, spend your disposable income. So what what does all this mean? Well, it means that the area, which is Jersey, which is nine miles by five, is not getting any bigger. Let's put it like that. And the dog population and the human population that goes with it is growing considerably. And by the way, the, the, the growth of the human population is obviously correlated with the growth of the dog population because more people equals more dog owners equals more dogs. So these these things are related too. So what does this mean? Well, it means that it means many things. And this is where things get a little complex. So it means that dogs are statistically much more likely to encounter each other when you go out and about. And the outcome of that is is not always great. Secondly, it means that there is more dog poo. And that is just a fact. And I think, you know, the thing to say about the dog poo thing, because this comes up on social media, I don't know why it is, but social media loves dog poo. Just social media goes crazy anytime there's you know, dog poo was found in this place. Let's do, let's post photos of poo bags and things. But the thing to say about the dog poo is that it's a numbers game. When, when the number of dogs using a specific area increases heavily, statistically, the amount of dog poo that is left is going to increase because it just takes, you know, let's just say that one dog out of um, I don't know, 20 dogs that are exercised, manages to do a poo unseen by their owner behind a bush or over a little hill or something. If you've got one dog out of 20 doing that and you've got 100 dogs using that area in a day, well, that's a lot more poos than if you had five dogs being exercised on that area per day. So to some extent, it's a numbers game. There's also the fact that Jersey has responded to the increase in dogs by having dog walkers. And this is another subject which I know is going to sound really familiar to people all over the place when I talk about this. So there was a time gone by when I was a little kid and we didn't have dogs when we were growing up. We always had cats. But I do remember asking my dad if we could have a dog. I remember really pleading with him. I was really into animals when I was a kid. We had rabbits, I had guinea pigs, I had hamsters, we had cats. But my dad would always say, you can't have a dog. And he would say, because there's massive responsibility with having a dog. You have to walk the dog every day and we work full time. We're out of the house all the day, meaning him and my mum. And it just wouldn't be fair on the dog. We can't have a dog. We don't have the time for a dog. And so that meant that we were not a dog owning family. And that was one dog less, or who knows, maybe two or three dogs less than, <laughs> than there may otherwise have been on the island. Now, in today's society, that doesn't happen. Today's society goes, sure, we work full time, but we can still have a dog because we'll just send the dog out with a dog walker who will take the dog and exercise the dog while we are out at work. And they will do this for us. Therefore, we can have a dog. So what this has meant is 
more and more families where people work full time getting dogs and a big sort of need for dog walkers who will take these dogs out, sometimes six to eight dogs at a time and exercise them off leash. Now, I don't know if you've ever tried to exercise several dogs at once, but it's really difficult. I, my maximum number of dogs that I can take out once of my own dogs, I'm a dog trainer <laughs> and the maximum number of my own trained dogs that I would want to take out at once, not in terms of being able to train them or do anything useful with them, just in terms of being able to see what they're up to and pick up their poops is three. I would not want to take out more than three dogs. And even then, I don't do that very often because it's not very productive. But that's a whole other subject, which is to do with training and not so much just to do with having basic control over the over the dogs. So these dog walkers who are taking out four, six, eight dogs at once, they haven't trained these dogs. So there's no training relationship that exists. These dogs may have zero recall and they're just going to go everywhere. Like if you drop if you've seen dogs coming out of the car um, when they really want um, to have a runabout at the start of their walk, it's a bit like dropping marbles on the floor. They'll just scatter in every direction, running around very quickly, very excited. And I will say it's pretty impossible to pick up the poops of eight dogs that have just jumped out of a car. It's really, really impossible to do that. So I... I'm pretty confident in saying that the reason there's a lot of dog poo is the reason that there is that there are a lot of dog walkers or a lot of people exercising too many dogs for them to be able to keep their eyes on them and to pick up all the poops that they do. So I do acknowledge, by the way, that dog walkers try to pick up any poo that they come across to kind of compensate for the ones that they may miss of their own dogs. And I do acknowledge that there are some responsible dog owners who only walk, sorry, dog walkers who only walk two or three or four dogs and they're to be commended. So I'm talking about the sort of mass dog walkers who want to walk lots of dogs. So, but this is a thing that's developed in society and it's been able to develop because government organizations, authorities are not thinking about this. So what I want to say is that it's very reactive, the situation that we have at the moment. So society lets these problems evolve and then slaps a massive, um, kind of legal response in order to to stem the problem. So that response is dogs have to be on leads. Dogs have to be on leads in increasing places. And that's, that's just what happens. So they wait for the problem to evolve and then they react to the problem instead of anticipating that there is a problem developing and trying to put some things in place to ameliorate that situation before it gets to the point where we have to remove the freedom of so many dog owners and dogs. So where are things headed? So Okay folks, it's time for a whistle pause. A whistle pause is when there would usually be an advert from a sponsor. But I don't have a sponsor, so instead I'm going to play you a tune on my trusty Acme 212. Now, the tune there is slightly hampered by the fact that the 212 is just one pitch, but I hope you can appreciate the rhythm. Now, the reason that we've got this beautiful whistle pause instead of an advert is because I don't get any funding for this podcast or sponsorship. I record it, edit it, upload it myself, and I pay for the server. 
I don't want to get a sponsor because then I have to promote whatever business is sponsoring me. And apart from the fact that I think that most dog products are bollocks, I would lose some of the independence and the freedom that I have at the moment to say whatever I want to say about whatever I want to say it about. But if you want to support me, and if you like this podcast, then there are some ways that you can support me, which will also benefit you, I hope. So you can check out the online courses I make, which you can find at forcefreegundog.com. And you can also check out my book, Force Free Gundog Training, and the accompanying workbook for it, which is a planner called The Workbook. You can get both of these from Amazon wherever you live in the world. So I really hope you can support me and check out some of this material. Anyway, that is the end of today's Whistle Pause. Let's get back to the show. Yeah, so things are headed not in a good direction because more and more locations are being um, denied to dogs when it comes to the exercising them off leash. So there is a big area called Gronte here, which was at in St. Wands. It was a very beautiful area. But yeah, when we first moved back to the island in 2013, this was a very popular place to come and exercise your dog. And it's a really you know, unusual in Jersey to find a big open grassy area where you can let the dogs run and where there is not too many other dog owners using the area. But this area has now been, um, has now become dogs on lead only. There is another area, Longville Manor, which is a, a private hotel on the island, had some great fields, which they used to allow, generously allow dog owners to use. But due to dog poo being left there and dog bags being left there, they decided they were going to make this out of bounds to the general public. So only hotel guests can use it now. There is a National Trust uh, property in the east of the island called Victoria Tower. And frequently they're threatening to make this be dogs on leads only due to the amount of dog poo which is around there. And I'm sure that I'm just giving you local places to me, but I'm sure that you guys, wherever you are in the world, can think of places around you which were once accessible to dogs off leash and now are no longer accessible to dogs off leash. Because that is the response which authorities have to this situation is just to tell everyone to keep their dogs on leash. And where we're headed for is we just have to look at most urban and suburban areas in North America to see what we're headed for. We are headed for on leash everywhere except for dog parks. I really don't, you know, it's very depressing, but you have to face that. And I think if you look at that and you think we are headed towards a society where dogs are not allowed to be off leash anywhere except for a confined area where they're going to be forced to interact with other dogs up close and where things can happen between them, which, you know, aren't optimal and also where they're just not free to explore and be a dog in the natural environment as they've evolved to be because the only place they can actually be free to explore the environment is in this sort of defined area where there are other dogs coming up to them all the time so i think that that is that's is the problem and that's what we're headed towards and there's also when we want to talk about the sort of um the conflict over resources subject. I mean, just to give you a couple of other examples of that, there's there's also conflict with other people who use these areas. So for example, I've been on some cliff paths and I've had cyclists, mountain, mountain bikers come down really fast from behind me and nearly knock me over. Now, 
you could argue, why aren't they going more slowly and more carefully? Well, the fact is that mountain mountain biking is about going really fast and being, you know, the, the adrenaline rush and excitement of going down a really sort of rocky outface and pushing yourself the limit of what you can, um, of the of the speed and the sort of control over the bike. And I completely understand why they want to do what they're doing. Equally, from my perspective, I'm just someone out with my dogs almost being knocked off my feet from behind and having my dogs almost run over by mountain bikes, which just appeared out of nowhere. And I didn't know they were coming. Now, you know, I can, I've got empathy for both sides. And this situation is another situation that is arising out of the competition for resources, the lack of space. If we lived in the hypothetical perfect world, which I spoke about a little bit earlier, where we all had infinite space to go and choose, I can bet that mountain bikers would not choose to use a path that they knew anyone else was going to be on. They would choose to go way out of the way to use some rugged paths that they knew they could go down at 100 miles an hour and not knock anyone over. Equally, as a dog as a dog owner looking for a location to train next size my dogs, I would not be going anywhere that I thought there was a chance that that could happen or I could run into anyone else. I would be choosing a place where there was space. So these situations and these 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 conflicts, because that is what happens, it ends up with the you know swear words being exchanged between both parties when this happens. Um, that that happens because of the lack of space, and I'm always very conscious of this now, and I always walk back thinking. This has happened due to overpopulation and a lack of space. And that's that's always what I think about. I don't think about this is their fault because they were coming too fast or, well, I might think that a little bit at first, but, you know, I don't dwell on that. And I'm very aware of the underlying, the underlying root cause behind all of this. Um, and you can also have the same thing like with horses. For example, in Jersey, horses are allowed on the beach frequently the same time that dogs are allowed on the beach. And so you may end up with out of control dogs trying to chase horses when horses are galloping along the beach. And again, you know, if those horse owners could choose a remote beach where they were not going to run into any dogs, you can be pretty sure they would choose that. They're only on that beach with dogs because there aren't any other beaches. I also want to cover very briefly the subject of dog parks and why they're a bad idea. And I think it's necessary to talk about this because whenever this subject comes up on social media, a lot of people are in favour of dog parks or in Jersey, as it were, beaches, specific beaches, which are designated as being dog beaches. And people seem to, even dog owners, seem to think this is a good thing. In my eyes, this is a little bit like turkeys voting for Christmas. This is not a good thing. We do not want to be heading towards a society where we have dog parks. So the first thing to say is that authorities, society generally, doesn't give without taking something away. So it's highly unlikely to happen that they're going to say, here, have some dog parks, or here, have some dog beaches, and they're also going to take something else away to compensate for that. What will probably happen if they did assign local beaches to, to dogs is they would also say, by the way, these other beaches are now off limits to dogs. Or your dogs can't be on you know, these certain other areas at these certain times. So they're going to take away other rights when they give you dog-specific beaches. And you just have to assume that that's going to happen because that would be the... That would be the incentive for for non-dog owners. They would like to see many of them anyway, dogs in a certain area and and not in you know area, other areas, so that they can reduce the amount of fouling that happens in their eyes. So yeah, things don't get given without other things being taken away. The second thing to say is that, and this is a really important point, 
I, I don't think it's good for us to live in a segregated society. I don't think it's good for us to have dogs go in this area, people go in this area. I don't think that's good. And by good, I don't, I mean, I don't think it's good for the relationship between dogs and humanity, dogs and people. I don't think it's good for people's attitude towards dogs. If we start to say dogs are unsafe and unclean, they must be put in this area so that all their poo is in this area. And so that if they do anything unsafe, they do it in this area and we're all safe in the other area. That's the kind of implicit messaging which is going on when we start to propose dog parks, when we start to segregate dogs off from society. So instead, we want to be working towards a society where dogs are allowed in restaurants, dogs are allowed in cafes, dogs are allowed in public transport. And this exists in many countries in Europe with very little conflict around it. So that's kind of what we want to be aiming towards. And we do not want to be encouraging, as dog owners, we don't want to be encouraging the segregation of dogs from society. That is not in our interests. So when I said it's like turkeys voting for Christmas, that's what I mean. It's This is not in our interest. It's um, it's going to sound like they're giving you something. It's going to sound like, hey, we've made you this special area. It's called a dog park. It's just for your dogs. It's for you guys. It's just for you. It's going to seem like, oh, we've got a thing. And everyone's going to feel like this is um, this is positive, like you've been given something. But actually, I want you to be aware of what's going on underneath all of that, of the messaging that this is giving out to society generally, and of, of you know, what's behind that and what it really means. So let's not see that as our future. Let's try to keep dogs integrated into mainstream human society. Let's try to emphasize the ways that dogs are useful to society and all the benefits that they bring to human society, which are many. And let's try to avoid the messaging that dogs are dangerous and dirty and need their own area and their own special place to be sent. Okay. So yes, that's that's also a reason. And then we've got all the other reasons, which I think are more known about already. So things like the hypersocial behavior that can develop when dogs play excessively as young dogs with other strange dogs. The fact that dogs which don't really want to have to interact with other dogs are forced to because you know, if they just want to be left in peace, to, in peace and quiet to sort of sniff about on the, by themselves and be a dog and investigate a natural environment, they're just unable to do that because they've got, you know, Tarzan type hyper greeter dogs coming over to play with them all the time um and then you've got dogs which you know it doesn't take an aggressive dog to to be a bad experience for another dog if you've got a, a young timid puppy maybe or maybe just a timid older dog and a very boisterous happy bouncy labrador comes over and squishes that dog that can create a lot of fear in that dog that was squished even though the dog that did it wasn't being aggressive. They were just trying to play, but they were being inappropriate in their play. And managing dog-dog interactions, frankly, I'll just say this as a trainer and behaviorist, is is one of the hardest things. It's it's harder than running a dog training class, managing dogs off-leash and knowing when to intervene and when to allow interactions to continue. It's really advanced stuff, that is. And the people the people that we put in the place of doing this are are dog owners who may have absolutely no idea about how to own a dog manage a dog or even what is expected from them in public places with their dogs as we talked about earlier so i'm going to interrupt this fabulous discussion to bring you today's whistle pause 
Whistle pause is where an ad break would usually be, but I don't have an ad break. I just have me and my whistle, my trusty T12, on which I'm going to play you a tune. The sad thing about my whistle at the moment is that it's dying a little bit, so bits of plastic have broken off. So it will only blow if I blow it really loudly, then a note will come out. Otherwise, it's this kind of whispery, hoarse, airy, breathy noise. So I've got another whistle on order, and I'd like to reassure you that the the whistle pause will improve in quality in future episodes. Now, the reason we don't have an ad break here and you have this whistle pause instead is because I don't have a sponsor. I don't want a sponsor because I want to be completely free to recommend the products I want to recommend. And I don't want to have to recommend a product that I don't believe in or love in order to get sponsorship. So there are some ways you can support me, though, because otherwise it is just me making this podcast. So, if you like this podcast, there are some simple things and free things that you can do. One is to share it and to tell other people about it, and to post it on social media, and to promote it whenever you can. The other thing you can do will benefit you as well, I hope. You can check out some of my courses, my online platform, forcefreegundog.com. And you can also check out my book, force-free gundog training and the accompanying workbook for it which is a planner called the workbook you can get both of these from amazon wherever you live that is the end of today's whistle pause let's get back to the show yes so let's kind of talk about some solutions because wherever you live Unless it's in a really remote location. And by the way, I should say that we are, mo- we are moving to a really remote location. <laughs> and I'm looking forward to that a lot. Um, in fact, my current issue is I'm thinking, gee, any puppies we're going to have in the future, I'm going to have to make, you know, I have to make a big trip to go to somewhere urban and suburban to socialize any puppies because we're going to be so far away from anywhere like that. So, um, yeah, we're moving to a really remote location. And before I do that, I have had a think about some solutions And I'm going to, you know, put those out there in case they're useful to anyone listening to this. So solutions. Hold the line. Okay, so the first thing to say is that we need to be proactive in all of this and stop being reactive. We need to stop waiting until the problem that is dogs has reached a peak which no one can tolerate anymore and there's dog poo everywhere and there are fights breaking out everywhere and the complaints to the police are just sky high about dog issues that society just decides they can't cope with this anymore all dogs unleash we need to kind of act before that if we don't want to see this as our future we need to be proactive and not reactive when it comes to addressing this as a problem so with that in mind firstly and this is specific to Jersey, and it may or may not be relevant to you where you live. Um, I know that there are other places that involve dog licenses. So in Jersey, it is required that everybody with a dog purchases a dog license every year. So it's in January, you have to go to the parish hall and you have to purchase your dog license. Your dog license used to be £5. I think it's actually been doubled recently now to, to £10 per dog per year. And the question they want to ask is... Where is this money going? What is the tax on dogs being spent on? Is it being spent on dog owners, dog ownership, 
dog-friendly policies and fixing these problems with society and dogs? Or is it just going into the general public coffers? Because I don't think it's fair if it's going into the general public, public coffers. I don't think it's fair. So if you're going to tax a certain subsection of society, you need to make sure that that tax is serving that sector of society in return. So that's the first thing that I would say. Let's make sure that this money is spent on, on, on addressing some of these problems. And my second solution here is a big thing that this could be spent on, which is a dog warden. So in the UK, on the mainland, there are in many locations, probably not as many as there should be, but there are dog wardens. Jersey doesn't have a dog warden, which frankly is completely ridiculous that we don't have a dog warden. And there, there does seem to be a sort of sector of society, dog owners in Jersey, who are afraid of the idea of having a dog warden, because this has kind of been floated about on social media a bit. And the, the general fear, if I can kind of paraphrase, it seems to be that a dog warden will will kind of come down on them really hard and we're policing them as dog owners and will take away more freedoms and will be sort of this authoritarian figure that, you know, is is not is not in the interest of dog owners to have a dog warden. Now, I would encourage you to really revise that view. So where I lived in in the UK, in, in Brighton, before we moved back to Jersey, we had a great dog warden called Sue who I'm sure isn't listening to this podcast. But anyway, she was a great dog warden. And she actually used to come and assess my Kennel Club Good Citizen um, tests. So I knew Sue quite well. So what does a dog warden do? Well, this is what they can do, which can really, really help. So if there are any sort of interactions between dogs where one dog attacks another dog or um, behaves in an aggressive way or is out of control, perhaps, might not even be aggression, might just be out of control, unable to be recalled. And the someone feels that they want to report this to someone. Well, the dog warden is a perfect person to report this to in the first instance. So what this means is it frees up a lot of police time because people don't go to the police. They go to the dog warden with this issue, or at least they're directed towards the dog warden. The other person on the island here who tends to end up being confronted with a lot of this is the state's vet. So the poor state's vet has a massively wide remit of stuff to be dealing with from infectious diseases um, to, I don't know, importing and exporting animals to all kinds of stuff. And they do not want to be dealing with um, my dog just got attacked by another dog on in this place. And please, can you speak to this the owner and you know they don't want to be dealing with that every day they just don't have the time to be dealing with that every day neither do the police neither do the police and so the dog warden is going to be taking up a lot of this um stuff which maybe isn't serious enough or severe enough or reached a degree of um severity in terms of the attack for anything legal to happen but it has reached a point where they can have a word of warning from the dog warner dog dog warden so the dog warden will go to the house will knock on their door and will say, hi, and they'll be wearing a uniform and they will look very official. They are not police. They will not be wearing a police uniform, but they will be wearing a uniform, an official uniform. And they will say, you know, we've had this report that your dog behaved in this way, in this location at this time. And we just want to let you know, that this is the law. The law is that your dog must be under control in a public place. And, you know, this, this situation's incident has been noted and we advise you, we give you these words of advice and our words of advice are that you keep your dog on a leash in a public place. Perhaps you keep your dog muzzled on a leash in a public place and they will give it words of advice. Now, this is not legal, but it's very official sounding. It can be a bit intimidating. 
And it, it has a massive impact, has a massive impact in terms of that person's future behavior with their dog in public places. So it frees up police time, it frees up the state's vet time, and it really serves the community. It really serves the, the dog-owning community. So the dog wardens are not something to be afraid of because they're on your side. If you're a responsible dog owner, they're going to be help help protect your dog from these negative experiences from other dogs because that person whose dog did that is going to keep that dog on a leash in future after having been slightly intimidated. Otherwise, without this, people feel they've kind of got away with it, that no one's noticed that their dog did this, that it hasn't been officially recorded. And it's highly likely to happen again. So so that was my second kind of point here. And I would propose that the money from dog licenses funds the salary of a dog warden. That would be what I would propose here and what I would suggest. So that was my second point. Now, my third point, and this one is going to arguably be the most controversial, but it's not actually that controversial at all. So when we, when you own a dog, you are actually owning a a furry missile of considerable weight sometimes and speed with sharp teeth in its mouth, which has the potential to do serious damage, whether whether the dog intends to do damage or whether the dog doesn't intend to, to do damage. I mean, I've known dogs just run at people on the beach and take them out from behind and knock them to the floor and break their knee on one occasion. So, so whether, whether this is about, you know, just reactivity or whether it's just about boisterousness and physicality, dogs have the potential to do serious damage to people and other dogs. So when we allow someone to own one of these furry missiles with sharp teeth in their mouth, I think we need to make sure that they, they understand how to, or at least what the objective is, how to behave in public as a dog owner. I mean, we have, we have driving tests, for goodness sake. We don't let people purchase a car and take the car on the road and figure out how to drive it while they're trying to drive around the roads. We make sure that people know how to drive a car before we let them take a car on the road unsupervised. So I would suggest that we have something similar for dog ownership, which can be, which can be connected to the dog license situation, because that's a good way to monitor who's done these various tests. So the first thing I would suggest is some sort of course at in Jersey, for example, the parish halls, where you have to do some sort of, um, you know, this is how to behave in a public place with your dog. This is what you should do. If you see this, then you should recall your dog. You should put your dog on a leash. If another dog is on a lead and is walking by, you should do this. You know, just kind of educating people on, on how to behave in public as, as a dog owner. It may just be one evening of, you know, going to some sort of presentation for new dog owners, which is held once a month or something. So something like that. And then that would be one suggestion I would have. And then the other suggestion, and, I, and by the way, you could have at the end of that, you could have a sort of online multiple choice test, a little bit like the driving theory test. So just to make sure people have actually been listening in class and you have to get score above a certain point in order to be, uh, in order to be able to progress or, or to be able to pass the course. So my other suggestion would be that you have to attend a, a, a basic training course with your dog when you are a new dog owner. So you have to attend a course which is six or eight weeks long, which is run by a reputable APBC listed trainer in order to be able to you know, own a dog, basically, um, to get to get your dog license. You have to be able to show that you've attended this course, a certificate from this course at the end of the course. Now, I do know that there are some people who attend training and whose dogs end up being 
completely untrained for various different reasons. Maybe they just don't put the work in. Maybe they just don't try. Maybe they've just got a really difficult dog, whatever. I know that 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 is the case and that not everybody who's done a course ends up with a brilliantly trained dog. But we also have to accept that the standard will be higher amongst dog owners. People will, more people will be able to do more stuff better if they've done a six to eight week dog training course than if they've just got a dog and they've no idea how to train their dog to sit or recall back to them and they just take the leash off the dog in a public place. So that would be my other suggestion, that you think about some kind of requirement for a dog license, which involves um, a multiple choice test, simple multiple choice test, and some sort of proof that you've attended a basic training course from a reputable trainer locally. So those are my suggestions. Firstly, let's run through them again. So firstly, that if you have, if you live somewhere where there is a requirement to have a dog license, that the money from that dog license is serving your needs as a dog owner, that the tax on dogs is being returned to dog owners, that you're getting something for this. Number two, a dog warden that you have, that we have a dog warden who tries to keep the peace and tries to be a buffer between the police and the public when it comes to dogs. Number three, that we have basic online multiple choice assessment and the requirement that people can pass a basic training course before they can own a dog. So I hope that those ideas have been useful and relevant. I appreciate that this particular episode hasn't had really anything to do with gun dog training, although I think that everybody who's owned a gun dog and tried to train a gun dog in a public place will have experienced other people interfering with that in some way and you know other dogs interfering with that in some way and would would welcome these suggestions so anyway that's what i have to say about dogs dog ownership heavily populated societies and trying to think about ways that we can manage that and regulate that in some way and i want to finish by saying that it's about being proactive not reactive we can't wait until everything implodes collapses and is in a complete mess and we have to slap some massive thing like all dogs unleash everywhere except dog parks on everybody figure it out now and help dogs and humanity live together while we still have time hold the line that's all for this week folks i just want to say before i go that my fancy workshop stop in the name of love or cookies or toys which is a remote stop workshop is still available you probably want to purchase it as an auditor now because today is the day for people to submit videos if they've got a working spot but you can purchase it as an auditor and you'll get a recording of the original lecture and you'll also get a recording of my feedback lecture when that comes out and it's just a great way for you to get your remote stop behavior started if you want a deeper dive into the remote stop i do have a six-week course on my website forcefreegundog.com and you can enroll in a six-week in-depth course on the remote stop so there are kind of two options there one is a sort of light bites quick introduction to the behavior and the other is a deeper dive getting to grips with distractions and proofing and getting the remote stop working in a situation maybe around game and that kind of thing so you've got a kind of couple of options there but the course on my website will be available ongoing and the Fendi workshop will probably be available for another sort of two or three weeks you want to grab that one soon if you want it have a great week, everybody, and I will see you next time.